Hi, this is Dylan Bird, and this is the podcast edition of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly show that puts local issues in a global context, giving insight into our cities, rights, culture, democracy, energy, and the environment. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am till midday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Got an absolutely stacked show this morning. Coming up very shortly, going to be chatting with ex-breakfaster, author and lecturer in journalism at the University of Melbourne, Jeff Sparrow. He's recently published a research article in the academic journal Australian Journalism Review, where he's tracked three Australian newspapers' use of the term woke um, going back over the past few years. So delivered some interesting findings and ties in with some of the work that Jeff's done over the years, which you might have read about or heard him talk about on this station around political correctness and its kind of implication in broader culture wars as well. Also going to be catching up with Benita Kolovos, the Victorian state correspondent with Guardian Australia. You might have heard there was a big infrastructure review, um, what well, the re- findings of that review were released over the past week and it's rankled some state premiers, New South Wales and Queensland are particularly, let's say, disgruntled by the withdrawal of some federal funding for some of their major infrastructure projects. Uh, Australia, Victoria also has lost a little bit of funding as well, but the response was a little bit more muted from the Premier Jacinta Allen. So going to be talking through all the detail with Benita, including what is set to continue in Victoria, what projects won't go ahead, and it seems like there's life in the airport rail yet. So that's one thing that no doubt we will talk about. I think it's going to get a little bit heavy and I know that, you know, people don't always want to engage with the situation in the Middle East at the moment and that's absolutely fine if you don't want to. So just giving you a heads up now, I'm going to play a short interview that I conducted down at the Block the Dock protest over the past week with Riyad Aladasi, who's a Palestinian-Australian nurse and at the time we spoke he was on an eight-day hunger strike Um, and the main reason for the the camp down at Webdock Drive in Melbourne is to try to prevent or at least raise awareness about Australia's arms exports to Israel and that's an issue that I talked about on last week's show with Rowan Araf from the Centre for International Justice and so this is kind of another chapter in that saga I suppose but I thought it would be worth just telling a bit of Riyadh's story Um, I did a short interview with him down there about the reasons he's there and you know from someone who's worked as a nurse his whole life um, and very much is an advocate for peace I feel like his perspective is one that's worth hearing. After that, I'm going to have a conversation with a Associate Professor of Linguistics at Macquarie University. Annabelle Lucan has written a book called War and Its Ideologies, A Social Semiotic Theory and Description, and goes into a lot of detail about the implications of the language that we use to report on conflict and war zones around the world. And of course, this has particular resonance at the moment with the news that we're getting about Israel and Gaza. So that's kind of a, I suppose, a complimentary interview following on my I chat with Riyadh. So stick with me. It's going to be a packed show this morning. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. If you encountered the term woke prior to 2016, there's a good chance you either would not have known what it meant, aside from the literal state of being awake, or embraced it as a positive descriptor of an awareness of social and racial injustice. Fast forward to now, and the word carries much different connotations, often used as a pejorative to belittle progressive causes. And so how did this come to be and what are the broader implications of the widespread adoption of this term and the connotations it carries throughout our media sphere? Writer and lecturer Dr Jeff Sparrow has sought to answer that question focused on the Australian context and he now joins me on the line. Hey Jeff, how are you going? Hey Dylan, how are you? Going well and uh, what prompted this little excursion? (laughs) (laughs) I think I was reading The Australian um, one morning and it seemed like every second or third article was denouncing wokeness and, you know, the woke elites and, you know, the woke universities and the woke this and the woke that. Um, And it suddenly struck me that here was a term that we would never have, you know, that seemed to have sort of all of a sudden be almost ubiquitous. And I wondered about the process by which it had come to sort of dominate the Australian press. And it seemed to me it was a little bit kind of interesting because if you think about the way the um, the press thinks about itself traditionally, journalists have this idea that they are simply reflecting reality and they're not engaging in political debates in and of themselves. And because woke is used these days as a pejorative, that is a negative 
term, um, it seemed a kind of strange process by which this term that was being used to, to, to dismiss certain political ideas had been adopted by a media that considered it neutral. And so I figured, well, if that was, if, if the media's self-conception was accurate, if the media was simply reporting what was happening in the world, perhaps the media was starting to use woke uh, more, more, more often because of the way it was being used in the community more generally. And so I thought what I'd do is have a look to see how it had turned up in the media and the particular types of articles where it had first appeared. So um, on the basis that if it had appeared in the news, then perhaps it was reflecting something that was happening in the world, whereas if it was appearing in opinion pieces, that seemed to have a sort of different meaning. So that was what I set out to do. Yeah, it's a really interesting exercise. And, I mean, I gave it you know, a very potted history of how the term, you know, has been used for some time, but it carries much sort of different connotations today. Can you just sort of dig into that a little bit further? Like, how has the, the word been used and, and, and how has its meaning changed, particularly in recent years? Yeah, so, as you say, it's a fascinating uh, kind of... Uh, there's a fascinating history to it. So the earliest, the the, Dixon, the earliest recorded instance seems to be in a New York Times article from 1962, where the African American novelist William Melvin Kelly is explaining African American uh, dialect to white readers in an article uh, entitled "If You're Woke, You Dig It," and. <laughs> Um, that seems to have been the sort of first usage of, of it in its modern sense. But there's a sort of, um, there's an African-American usage that goes way back into the 20th century. You can go back to people like Marcus Garvey or someone else uh, is often cited as a sort of early source for the term, you know, in his calls to wake up Ethiopia and wake up um, Africa. So it, it takes on this connotation in African-American dialogue, meaning, be, meaning being aware of uh, racial racial injustice and then it becomes um popularized in popular culture so georgia anna throw the um the soul musician um uses the uses the, the term stay woke in one of her songs mm. um erica badu in in uh, 2008 uses woke in both senses, both using it to, to being um, in the sense of being awake to like a lover who is cheating on you, but also in the sense of being aware of political injustice. So the term really enters the sort of uh, political culture, I guess, around the Black Lives Matter stuff. So from 2015, it became sort of a key slogan associated with the Black Lives Matter, with you know the hashtag Stay Woke uh, trending. Um, in response to those demonstrations. And what became really interesting is from about 2017, it had moved from being a term that had been used by African-American people to a term that was increasingly being used to describe people who were hypocritical in the sense that they were pretending that they were interested in in um, fighting social injustices, but they're actually just kind of hipsters or the like. And so by from about 2017, that, that, that sort of pejorative connotation comes to the fore, and that's when it really enters the sort of American... Um, American mainstream. So this is it's, there's a strange transition where it goes from African American vernacular into popular culture, and then the meaning kind of changes. And of course, what happens in Australia is um, quite different to all of that. That's right. And I mean, as you say, you're I suppose testing I suppose this self image that the press has of you know mirroring society versus kind of you know advocating or, or kind of leading on opinion and that sort of thing. So you looked at at the way that woke has been used across different kinds of, of articles and different kind of genres of news. I suppose which publications did you focus on, and, and what did you find? So I looked at the Australian, the Sydney Morning Herald, and the Herald Sun. And what's really interesting, so woke does not appear in Australian newspapers in the political sense before 2016. So when it's being used as a genuine term, in, in widely used in African-American vernacular, it never appears in Australian media. So it's only when it enters sort of pop culture that it, uh, that it moves into the Australian press. And interestingly, very early on, the first sort of usages of it are in the Herald Sun, where it mostly turns up in terms of um, in articles about pop music. Mm. So um, Mikey Carl, the Herald Sun music writer, that a lot of people will probably know, was using it in 2016. Um, you know, when he was talking about various um, various musicians. And what's interesting is sometimes when he uses it, it 
majority of quotations, but other times it doesn't. Um, so he's still, like, in some of his articles, he's still using woke as a positive term. So that it's good to be woke, and people are describing themselves as being woke and being proud of uh, being woke. So in that early phase, the first time it appears in a political context is bizarrely in an article, a 2016 article by the, Australians, uh, the Australian um, opinionator Greg Sheridan, who is using it, uh, who describes it as a, um, uh, describes it approvingly as a predominantly black slang term for being wide awake and switched on. Wow. Greg Sheridan, <laughs> leading lower <laughs> cause. That's right. So Greg Sheridan, in the first time he's using it, is actually describing work as a good thing to be. Um, and so what happens after that in the next few years, where it proliferates, is basically it moves across from the art section of the newspapers into the opinion sections. And it is predominantly taken up by a very small number of people who use it over and over and over again. And, um, I mean, there's no surprises as to who these people are. So Greg Sheridan is one of them. He uses it once in 2016. In 2019, he uses it 11 times. In 2020, he uses it 17 times. So Sheridan, Rita Pahani, Chris Kenny, Janet Albertson, Andrew Bolt, they are the people who popularise the term woke in the Australian newspaper. And it's quite clear it, it is used overwhelmingly in commentary, and it's only much later that you start to see that appearing at all in news sections. So, so this notion that they're simply reflecting um, the way that the word is being used in the wider society is clearly not the case. Fascinating. Speaking with Jeff Sparrow, author, ex-breakfaster, lecturer in journalism at the University of Melbourne, all about a new research article he's published in the latest edition of Australian Journalism Review. That's an academic journal. And I'm interested in, in kind of the, the broader way that, that the language of woke and wokeism starts to then influence our politics. I mean, we see, you know, Anthony Albanese hit with questions around sort of gender and identity politics that are perceived as sort of testing his his woke credentials. And then we see woke, you know, used in headlines, not necessarily in inverted commas, but to signify a particular political stance. How do you kind of conceptualise what woke then comes to represent for us as reported, you know, through these, these kinds of publications? Yeah, so... It, um in a lot of ways, it reflects an earlier uh, the term political correctness to signify something very, very similar. I think what wokeness came to mean was essentially what political correctness had mean and had meant um, to a previous generation. And why I think it's politically significant is from about 2017, 2018, woke is never a term that, that anyone uses to describe themselves in the media. The, the cases in which people said, I am woke after about 2018 are vanishingly, overwhelmingly, woke is used to describe someone else. And when it's used in that way, the description is invariably negative. At the same time, it's presented... Um, as if it's a neutral description, even though the connotations are negative. So mm. it's a way of framing um, a political uh, condemnation of someone in such a way as it doesn't seem like you're condemning them. So you're presenting it as if this is how the person describes themselves, that they adhere to something called wokeness, even though there is almost nobody who describes themselves in those terms. So it's a way of sort of smuggling a kind of opinion into a neutral description. And this is why I think it becomes so crucial to... To, to, to opinion writers, because it's an incredibly effective rhetorical term. You know, it, it's got this sort of function of ridiculing someone without sounding as if you're ridiculing them. Yeah, and it's, it's a very effective shorthand in that way as well. And I mean, I was reading your piece and thinking about your book, um, uh, Trigger Warnings and the Rise of the Right, uh, which I think was published in 2018, wasn't it? Political Correctness and the Rise of the Right is the full title. And I mean, I can't remember, I didn't go back and read it, but I can't remember woke being used around that time, because as you Right, it does come into much more sort of currency after them. But in that book, you you put forward a very nuanced sort of analysis and critique, I suppose, of a particular approach to progressive politics that you label as as kind of smug politics. We see on the flip side that sort of anti wokeness is used; it's sort of weaponized by the culture wars, I suppose. So, how do you see that sort of playing into the broader need, I suppose, for progressive politics to to make sure that it's you know 
progressing kind of solidarity and not, not kind of falling into some of the traps that might be proposed through the way that wokeism is, is recognised across the media? Yeah, um, that's a huge argument and a really interesting one. But I think I, one of the things I noticed when I was looking at these newspapers is that woke is introduced by a small number of these incredibly, you know, prominent, well-paid opinionators, the, you know, the, the Rita Pahinis and the Andrew Boltz and all the rest of it. It only starts to appear in um, the letters section of, the, of, of these papers um, a year or so after the pundits are using it. And, and what's happening? And after that, it then starts to appear in, say, the letters and the text that the Herald Sun is publishing almost weekly. So, so what happens is there is a particular way of framing political issues using this terminology, which in a sense, it, it, almost, it, it almost is being taught to the readers as this is the way that, you know, you talk about these these these, these causes. And you can see how effective this is for conservatives. It's a lot um, it's a lot easier to say, oh, you know, I'm so sick of this wokeness to say than to say, I'm so sick of this anti-racism. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the connotations uh, are, 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 are quite... Um, are quite different, and I think that goes to the, the, the broader question that, that, that you're asking. That that a lot of the political causes, the political attitudes that are being attacked with this vocabulary of wokeness are actually tremendously popular. Like most Australians now are, you know, really accepting of the idea that we should we should combat racism and you know we should combat sexism and we should fight for equality. There's a much, much greater commitment to that as a sort of general set of principles than there would have been 20 or 30 years ago. It's just that the way these things are framed actually has uh, a tremendous impact on, you know, the effectiveness of political campaigns either for or against them. And so, you know, I think that's something that progressives need to, 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 to think about, whether we are falling into the, the gaps that are being set for us by these people or whether we're not. And in terms of, I mean, in terms of this particular research, I think what it sort of shows is that, in some ways, it's a really kind of obvious point, I guess, but the framing that the media has as a sort of uh, just a neutral descriptor of the world around it is just patently not not true. That this, you know, this is clearly a political intervention by a series of people who are... Uh, you know, political agents as much as they are, you know, um, simply reporters of the world. Yeah, and interesting. I mean, I'm going to be having a conversation later this morning with Annabelle Lucan, who's a linguist, about the language of, of war and conflict in relation to, um, you know, what's going on in Israel and Gaza at the moment as well. So we can sort of a, a continuation adjacent conversation to be had in around an hour and a half's time. It's been fascinating chatting with you, Jeff. Thanks so much and uh, stay woke. Yeah, no worries. I should just point out that uh, anyone wants to check out Australian Journalism Review, uh, there's a scholar by the name of Dylan Burton. Has an article <laughs> and stuff. Check out some of his work. Giving me props. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, if you can find your way to the Australian Journalism Review, I was in the last issue. That's right. <laughs> Thanks so much. I'll um, chat to you soon. Triple Last week, the federal government released an independent review into the country's infrastructure projects. In response, it's set to scuttle 50 projects labelled as high-risk, delivering $7 billion in savings that will be funnelled into other projects. The outcomes of the review have been particularly anticipated here in Victoria, with the state government's ambitious infrastructure agenda, some of which is tied to federal funding. So what has survived and what faces the chopping block? Benita Kolovos is Victorian state correspondent with Guardian Australia. She's been waiting through through all the detail and joins me now on the line. Hello, Benita. How are you going? Good morning, Dylan. I'm good. How are you? Going well, and um, thanks for doing this work for us. I noted that Premier Jacinta Allen's response to this announcement was a little bit more muted than other state premiers who are pretty unhappy with what's emerged from the review. Why do you think that was the case? Well, um, you've also got to remember, too, timing is really key in politics. Um, Queensland are about to head to an election, so it, it always works politically to get into a fight with the federal government um, when you're not doing too well. So it makes sense that Queensland has um, cracked it. Um, New South Wales um, too, because there's actually more money that they've lost than here in Victoria. Um, I think the, the justification here in Victoria is because these projects, the ones that have been canned, there's about 12, they, 
they're worth $4 billion um, to Victoria, but they were projects that the government never really wanted, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, things that the former federal coalition government committed to, there are a couple that, um, one that comes to mind is Geelong Fast Trail, which the federal government kind of imposed on the Vic government. And then all these like commuter car parks, there was a intersection upgrade in the seat of Kuyong, Josh Frydenberg's former seat. Um, so there was a lot of different projects that the Victorian government didn't necessarily want money being funneled into. So for them, it's kind of not really a huge loss, although, you know, some Victorians probably disagree. Yeah, so a bit of relief even potentially to have the federal government, you know, deciding themselves that these aren't projects worth funding. Um, I mean, a major thing that we love talking about in Victoria is the airport rail. Um, That was paused back in May and we thought maybe this again would signal that the project's never going to be built in our lifetime or others' (laughs) lifetimes. Um, What's going on with airport rail? (laughs) Yeah, so I think that's the that's the key piece um, that we were all waiting for here in Victoria is what's going to happen to the $5 billion that the federal government had committed to the project. The Vic government had committed um, $5 billion as well. There was some talk, because it's just one of those projects that's so hard, there's been like really difficult negotiations with the airport over it. There were some people in the government that were quietly hoping that the government, the federal government would pull the pin or pause it, and that hasn't happened. So it, it creates, a, I guess, a bit of um, momentum to finally get this airport done. And, and from a federal point of view, it makes sense because this would be such a win, like, to get this project that I think has been on the cards for six decades yeah. <laughs> to be the actual government that gets it done. And I know that the state government had been talking about this in the lead-up to the 2018, the 2022 election, that we're going to be the ones to finally build it. But now they they kind of have to. And will it cost as much as they said it would back in 2020? Um, Will it be easy? Um, Will the airport agree to do it? Um, I reckon the answer to all those questions is no at this moment. Yeah, well, there is, you know, seemingly a standoff or a lot of tension, at least, between the government and the airport over this. I mean, we read about, um, you know, differing opinions over an above versus below ground station, with an above ground station being, you know, substantially cheaper to deliver. I mean, is that a significant impasse still? Or what else is your sense of what might be holding this up? Yeah, so that's the, that's the big sticking point at the moment. Um, state government and federal government money, that could only pay for an above-ground railway station. Um, obviously, when you start digging and tunnels, um, that starts to add you know, to the cost of something like this, and not to mention the fact that um, the, the fire brigade works out at Melbourne Airport and there's a lot of PFAS, and we've heard about that holding up the Westgate Tunnel. You know, it would only probably hold this one up too. So I do see... Um, why the government wants to do it above the ground, but then you've got to remember for the airport, a lot of their money comes from parking. Mm. And um, the you know the works would mean that a lot of that revenue is gone, so they want to get compensated for that. That compensation bill, I think they want up to a billion dollars worth of compensation, which the government's saying we're not going to hand it over. It's been I think this has been going on for three years, this back and forth over... Um, underground, overground compensation, what the station's going to look like. And people within the state government have been telling me that, okay, it's great that the federal government's going to commit and give that $5 billion as promised, but they're actually going to have to play a more aggressive role in the negotiations. They're going to have to, you know, maybe use their power because that airport is on Crown land to sort of force things along. So I think for them it's like, great, we've got the money, but can you actually help us get this thing done? Yeah, and I mean, I, I did have a chuckle at some of your reporting on this, and, and I understand maybe from your reporting, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this might have been information passed on to you by um, by politicians, by government, that the airport rail was uh, had a long list of technical requirements for the project, and one of those, apparently, was wall surfaces that engage the five human senses to reduce anxiety, <laughs> and I just had a laugh because I haven't felt like airports ever try to reduce anxiety, and also, how might a wall surface engage taste was a question I had as well but what's the deal there? (laughs) That yeah that was my question too so yeah people within um, the government are obviously keen to chat about why they're stuck in negotiations they're saying they're the sorts of things that the airport want to happen as well as like um, water fountains and play areas and um, I think the roof lining has to be wooden and horizontal um, all this sort of stuff 
obviously it's architecture, like speak, and um, I'm sure there is a way that you can make the wall engage with the five senses. I think what the government's trying to do is say, this is the sort of stuff that we've been stuck on. Um, You know, I guess they come out of that looking good. Although when I did speak to a couple of people at the airport, they were saying that it's all been taken out of context. And there was some talk um, from people within the government that it was going to cost $60 to go underground, and they think that's a completely made-up figure. So I don't think they're going to be friends anytime soon. (laughs) Yeah, and that's going to continue for the foreseeable future, that back and forth, I imagine. Speaking with Benita Kolobos, Victorian State Correspondent with Guardian Australia, speaking about some major, major infrastructure announcement coming out from the federal government about the funding to be allocated for a number of projects. Um, we're speaking about you know, Victoria specifically in this conversation. Um, another big project is the, is the suburban rail loop. So that one is set to continue, I understand? Yeah, so that was never subject to the review, which I think is very interesting because mm. obviously there's a lot of experts here in Victoria that aren't a fan of that project. They don't think it stacks up. They don't like the way you know it was worked on behind the scenes without even people within the Department of Transport knowing about it. Um, obviously, at the um, previous federal election, Anthony Albanese pledged I think, $2 billion to the project. But because that was an election commitment, that didn't become a part of the infrastructure review. Mm. Um, so a lot of people reckon um, they would have liked to have seen some experts weigh in on it. There was a bit of, um, I guess, critique of the Vic government in the infrastructure review. It said that the business case for that, as well as Melbourne Airport Rail, was a bit shonky. Um, and that, you know, the federal government, if they're still going to commit money to that project, they're going to have to, you know, request from the Vic government a lot more information about budgets and timelines and projections and how things are going. Because this is, I think, a project going to take 30 Plus, used to complete, you can't just hand over the money and not, you know, have some sort of KPIs attached to it. So, um, a little bit of criticism about the suburban rail loop, but forging ahead. Yeah, and I mean, I'm interested in your perspective as well about the, the broader approach to infrastructure funding at the federal level as well. I understand there's been, there is going to be a focus more on on corridors, which, as I understand it, will mean that states don't necessarily have to lobby just for for their sort of portion, for example, of a major, you know, road or rail project that covers multiple states kind of independently. Do you have much of a sense of, of whether that will be more effective or, or how have, you know, relevant state premiers or, um, or those involved in infrastructure responded to that kind of approach? Yeah, so we've got kind of two distinct different corridors we're talking about, we're talking about between states, those big sort of freeways, highways, um, that is all going to be done a lot more centralised, which, which makes sense because... Um, you know, freight relies on it, all the states rely on it, federal government has to make more of a contribution. The other corridors is suburban corridors um, and making sure that there's more housing. And, you know, we spoke, I think, about the housing statement yeah. a couple of months ago. Here in Victoria, uh, making sure that people have homes near stations and the like. Um, so that, I think, is really interesting too. And I guess that is where suburban rail loop will play a role yeah. in, you know, making sure that there's more access to transport in the inner areas rather than people living further and further out of Melbourne. Absolutely. And um, also, I mean, we had a by-election over the weekend. I know you've been busy covering a lot of things. You're down at Mount Martha at the moment in the wake <laughs> of that, that plane crash. But do you have sort of any any main takeaways from what happened over the weekend in, in Mulgrave? Look, it kind of played out exactly how I thought it would. I don't think there was ever really doubt that Labor weren't going to hang on to that seat. It's been their seat for decades. But you always will have a swing when the popular leader retires. And I know a lot of people are divided on on Daniel Andrews, but um, in his area, he was really well-liked, had a 12% buffer on that seat. Um, So, yeah, it was funny because we always, with by-elections, we don't know whether it's worth, worth us being rostered on to cover him. Um, and I was a bit nervous, I must admit. There were some Labor people that were a bit nervous about the seat, and I was like, oh, should I be rostered on? But in the end, um, yeah, gut was right. That's good. And you managed to have a weekend, which is a good thing as well. Um, and I understand <laughs> from this as well, I mean, you know, the Liberal Party, of course, will, will point to the swing against Labor, but their primary vote wasn't necessarily, you know, cause for celebration either. Exactly, and I think it's a bit cheeky of them to say, I think they came out immediately after the result saying, you know, Victorians are sick and tired of Jacinta Allen and her government because they voted them back in. And if anything, um, where the vote left Labor, they went towards the Greens, they went towards 
One Nation, they went towards um, Ian Cook, who was the independent candidate in that seat. So people might be, you know, thinking about another option other than Labor, but it's not the Liberals. So that's yeah. a massive problem for them that they're going to have to try and overcome. Yeah, well, this is probably the last time we'll speak this year, Benita. It's been um, a real pleasure having you as part of the show this year. Thanks so much for all the work you do and being up for speaking to us, and I um, hope to continue it again in 2024. Thank you very much. I hope you have a lovely um, break if you're getting one. I very much am, and I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, Benita. Chat again soon. Thank you. Cheers. See you. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. So last week on the show, if you were listening, you'd know that I spoke to Rowan Araf from the Australian Centre for International Justice about a legal action they're supporting to gain more transparency over Australia's defence exports to Israel, which has been increasing in recent years. There's a, a lot of concern out there about the potential use of Australian supplied weapons or other material in the current offensive in Gaza. And another effort that's been launched in response to that has been the Block the Dock protest down at Melbourne's docks, where a collection of pro-Palestine advocates have been camped out for more than a week trying to, to stop and raise awareness about companies sending arms and related material overseas. I went down there and spent a brief amount of time down there on Friday to get a sense of, of the motivations and, and kind of the vibe in the camp and, and what's led to people um, launching that action. I think it's important to highlight the voices of those who are going to, to some lengths to stop this violence. You'll hear from Riyad Aladasi in just a moment. He's a Palestinian-Australian nurse who, at the time we spoke, was on an eight-day hunger strike. And a word of warning, as I said just before, this is a fairly heavy interview. It might not be to everyone's tastes, but I've decided to play it because I think um, it's important to be reminded of the humanity of this situation. So here is Riyad Aladasi speaking last Friday at Web Dock Road in Melbourne. Uh, my name is uh, Riyad. I'm a registered nurse, uh, Palestinian-Australian. I trained as a nurse in Gaza, and um, now I work in uh, Melbourne Hospital. Um, I started to know, um, I knew about, about Australia back in 2004. I was the head nurse of the emergency and outpatient department at a charity hospital called Al-Auda Hospital in Jabali refugee camp. And we were visited by... Uh, a local Melbourneian charity called the Children First Foundation, and their aim is to take kids who need uh, life-changing, uh, complicated operations to be uh, to travel to Australia here and be operated on. All this effort is done uh, by the charity and the doctors, surgeons, and anesthetists. They all donate their time for free. Um, so I came out with the first group in um, 2004, which was uh, very challenging because the border was closed at the time with with um, with Egypt. It was uh, fully controlled by the Israeli army at the time. So I managed to get the kids out of a queue of about 17,000 people. It was in a minute, in a way, a miracle to get them out. As we were leaving, the, the kids got out of the car. They ran towards the gate to go into the inspection or the checkout zone. I heard uh, a safety pin go off the automatic machine gun that uh, one of the soldiers in the posts had. So I called the kids, hugged them. But they ran towards the gate? They were running towards the gate, and he was about to shoot them. I heard the safety pin go off. Straight away, I screamed at the kids, got them around my arms. I surrounded them with my arms, uh, surrounded them with my arms, and uh, um, yelled at him, if you want to shoot someone, you shoot me. You don't shoot the children. Uh, then we got to Melbourne, and the kids did the same thing. At, after we go through the tunnel, you know, the bridge, where they get out of the plane, and they get to the arrival area, they did the same, they ran, so I screamed at them again. And an Australian immigration officer comes from behind the counter and all he says to me was, let them be mate. These were the words. Like, what? Time stopped, my body almost collapsed because I was running off adrenaline for five days trying to get the kids out. And uh, 
That was the first sentence I ever heard in on Australian land, saying, let them be mate. You go from someone in your phone who wants to shoot you for the le- for any movement to someone in a form that says, let them be mate. Um, so this is the Australia that I want. This is the Australia that should be. These kids and so many other kids have been treated in Australia completely free by donations of the Australian people. This is the spirit of the Australian people. We don't go around supporting killers. We don't go around supporting murderers under under any so-called agreement or whatever it is. That is the real Australia, not the politicians. And that's why you're here on a hunger strike yes. at the docks in Melbourne. Can you talk to me about what led you here and what led you to decide to go on this hunger strike, which I think is running for eight days? Eight days right? today, yeah. yeah. So what made me do it is that I had enough of the politicians lying through through their teeth, starting with Albo, all misguiding and misleading people, not mentioning anything about what the true international law says. We have been maimed, massacred, displaced since 1948. And this is another thing people tend to forget. Under the assumption that some, that Britain had the right to give the Jewish people a country in Palestine. Did, does Britain own the land? No. Did Britain ever own, own the land? No, the land is owned by the people. And the Palestinian people are not just Muslims. They are Christians and Jews who have lived hundreds of years together, hand in hand, building societies, being friends, being good mates, being family. These are the, these are the Palestinian people. Where did this get lost? So you squeeze people up. You build walls around them. Gaza is the largest jail in the world. It's the largest open-air jail in the world. We can't travel without permits from either side, whether the Egyptian or the Israeli side. We can't. We're not allowed to. We have to ask for permissions to leave. They rejected permits for babies who needed surgeries just because they have a distant relevant or their system keeps putting um, what you call security ban on, on... tens of thousands of people for no reason but just just the system it just rotates so that's point number one number two they need to cut all military relationship with the murderers third thing the media need to stop lying as well and they need to stop saying died 11 or 12,000 people don't just die walking down the streets they need to, to either be true journalists not propagandists, because that's what they're doing now. All hate speech needs to stop. We're not, we're not violent, we're peaceful, we love peace, we're in this country, we respect, we respect the law, we abide it. I'm a nurse, I save lives, and that's what I do. That, yeah, that's something I wanted to ask you about. You've spent your career helping people, saving lives in, in hospitals, in Gaza, I understand, yep. in some other places as well, and yep. now in Melbourne. If I may ask, what's your reaction to seeing the attacks, particularly on hospitals and the devastation that that's wrought in Gaza? They're lying through their teeth about everything. Same as they lied about Iraq. The same same situation. It's just, you know, as, 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 as the saying goes, you know, same shit, different faces. It's just now people know about it. And now the people know that two million Iraqis were killed for nothing. They were killed because the politicians lied again. So who has the best track record of lying? The United States and its allies. The same is happening now. This has to stop. People need to mobilize to stop. I'd love it to be a global movement where the civilians can, can, you know, get on top of things and stop all kinds of wars. We had enough. We had enough. The only ones who benefit from it are, you know, the companies, the, 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 the weapon manufacturers, these guys. These are the ones, the only benefits from war. Anybody, any people involved in war, they, both sides lose. There is no winner in war. This has to stop.
As as for, um, I don't want to get off track here. Sorry, my brain is. That's okay. I might. I'll, I'll wrap it up shortly. Yeah. But I was just wondering. I mean, you've been here for eight days. You've just had a, a haircut. You've seen your son for the first time in yeah. eight days. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. What's the plan going forward for you in terms of this location and, and your hunger strike? So basically now, I'm on. Um, Sustenance, as, I can, as you can see, I just have uh, a day or two a day, uh, some electrolytes or vitamins just to keep my basic bodily functions going and to keep my brain going. And um, starting from tonight, it will be no sustenance, full-on hunger strike until um, Albo comes here and talks to me. I'm no politician, I'm just a simple human being who wants to save Australia from, from the the stupid politicians. Why, why can't we be just like Switzerland? Why can't we be just neutral? Why do we have to stick our noses where it doesn't belong? 5,000 kids have been killed so far. And we don't know the numbers who are under the rubble yet. I still don't, can't tell you, I, I, I can't tell you how many of my friends I've already lost because there's no connection. So far I know of at least 15 between family, friends, people I sat with, ate with, no. Doctors, nurses, paramedics. I know these people. None of them is, carries a gun or knows how to shoot a gun. So the Australian people, as, as they are the good people, need to mobilize. They can't stay blind forever. They need to open their eyes and take responsibility because it is their money. Riyadh, thank you so much for your time and all the best. Thank you very much. So powerful words there. Riyad Aladasi, he's currently still, I believe, on a hunger strike down there at the docks in Melbourne to, to raise awareness and attempt to, to blockade some of the arms exports to Israel. If that interview did cause any issues for you, the number for Beyond Blue is one three hundred double two four six three six. Lifeline one three double one one four. Triple R. So in that last interview, you heard Riyad Aladasi call out some of the media coverage of the situation in Israel and Gaza. And if you jump on social media, which I'm sure many of you have, you'll encounter similar criticisms. A couple of weeks ago, it was reported that the ABC held an internal meeting to air journalist concerns over how the conflict um, had been reported and the level of reliance um, among some on Israeli talking points. Words carry a lot of power and frame our whole understanding of a situation that for most of us is unfolding many thousands of kilometres away. To help us get a sense and and analyse some of this reporting and consider how it informs our reality, I'm very happy to be joined by Annabelle Lucan, Associate Professor in Linguistics at Macquarie University and author of the book War and Its Ideologies, Social Semiotic Theory and Description. Hello, Annabelle. Thanks for spending some time with us on Triple R. Thanks for the invitation, Dylan. My absolute pleasure. And I wonder if we can sort of start a bit broader from the the current context in the Middle East. I mean, your book from 2019 is mainly focused on news reports of the 2003 invasion of Iraq um, by the USA, Britain and and Australia. What does that situation tell us about how language is used to explain or, or even justify violence? Uh, Well, this was a book that came out of about 15 years of research and I was really interested in listening to the language uh, reporting the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And in that process, I looked at lots of news reports and other kinds of language that we use and it's really clear that we have a certain way of framing the violence that we think is okay, and that we want to justify and that we want to live with versus the language that we use for the violence that we find objectionable, that we want to stigmatise, that we treat as illegal. So we've got these two very different framing strategies and, you know, the words we use are, are right in the middle of, you know, making that really critical differentiation. And so what did you find based on your analysis of, of reporting around that incident? Well, everything that I was looking at uh, at the time of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, it's all unfolding now as Mm. we look at the media reporting of Hamas, uh, the Hamas attack on Israel and then uh, Israel's response to that. And, you know, here's a really classic example. Uh, So Joe Biden's written a column uh, published in the Washington Post a few days ago and he's trying to, you know, get a wording that he can live with 
describing what Hamas did in Israel uh, and describing what's going on in Palestine. Now, when he's talking about Hamas, he talks about their murderous nihilism. He calls it an atrocity. He talks about people being maimed and murdered. He calls it a massacre. Then when it comes to talk about Palestine, there's no mention of what the Israelis are doing. He's, he talks about being heartbroken by the deaths of civilians, that he's saying it's a tragedy, every lost life is a tragedy. Right? So we've got these really different kinds of framings. On the one hand, what Hamas is doing, it's terrible, it's brutal, it's murder. He really gives them very strong agency um, and his words are just saturated with this condemnation. Then we come over to what's, you know, from one point of view, looks the same except on a much bigger scale uh, and the words that he chooses are absolutely different and it's almost as if this is just something that almost can't be helped. So, you know, we've got very, very different um, ways of wording these events. Now, if you're a family who's lost loved ones, does it feel that different to you whether you're on one side of the border or the other? You know, when mm. I try and put myself in that situation, I think, if you know, if someone killed my child for political purposes... I wouldn't care who they are. It would, you know, it would just be, it would feel like murder to me. Mm. That's not the language we're getting. Yeah, and, and I suppose on the one hand, there's, you know, politicians <coughs> who might use that kind of you know, maybe equivocal or, or certainly sort of asymmetrical language when they talk about actions perpetrated by Hamas versus the IDF and the like. It's another thing for yep. sort of media to, to then report that and adopt some of that, that terminology in their reporting. I mean, one thing that, that Riyadh mentioned in, in the previous interview, interview that I just aired that I know you know you, you weren't sort of necessarily listening to, but but he called out the um, the, the tendency to report the fact that uh, you know Palestinians have died rather than the fact that they'd sort of been killed. So in that difference, there's there's a taking away of sort of the action of killing. Is that something that that you tend to see in reporting on war and violence generally? Uh, absolutely, and there's a name for that distinction. So that we've got a really important grammatical distinction going on. So we've got, on the one hand, we've got the use of um, an agent. So if you say someone was killed, then we know that that somebody or something has perpetrated that action. If you say they died, then it's like they did it all on their own. So it's a fundamental grammatical distinction and it's around the idea, you know, people talk a lot about active voice versus passive voice. I hope it's okay to talk grammar with you, Dylan. Please go ahead, give us all a lesson. get a bit kind of nervous (laughs) when I start to talk about grammar. But when we say Palestinians died, we use a framing that's called middle voice. And so there's no agency in, in that construction of reality. And because it's a grammatical distinction, it's everywhere, you can't get away from it. So we're doing this all the time. This is what grammar is about. And so we, you know, we get to make this choice. Are we going to say Palestinians have been killed? You know, everybody's happy to say Israelis have been killed and some are even prepared to say Israelis were murdered. We come over to reporting on Palestine and it's like, you know, lives lost are a tragedy. So we get this language that's got no agency in it. And, you know, it gives us a different feeling about the legitimacy of the violence. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't want to sort of ask you to necessarily get inside the heads of, of news editors everywhere, but I'm sort of wondering about the extent to which, as as you observe the kind of language being used to report on the situation in, in Israel and Gaza at the moment, whether that is reflective of kind of a particular stance journalists take in trying to report, you know, objectively in adverted commas and provide sort of both sides coverage versus whether it is more maybe sort of ideological, ideologically driven like, what's your sense of, of, of those two distinctions? Well, um, the, the, the most important message that I would say about all this is there is no neutral territory in language. Mm. Now, what you're talking about is an accepted kind of sense of objective reporting where you're just recording the facts. And often what that involves is language where you don't 
lay blame because then you'd be choosing sides, right? So you leave out the agent and you also use the kind of language that puts people at a distance from the terrible, brutal violence that's going on. So uh, when we use language like, you know, the IDF is conducting operations or they're engaging in military action, okay, we've got lots and lots of versions of that where essentially what we're doing is using very, very general terms that sound rational and plausible and unemotional and objective... But, of course, there's no objectivity. There's no neutrality, right? All mm. you're doing is keeping your audience a long way from the specificity of what's going on. And once you get closer, then your language becomes more kind of visceral. You get agency and you get a real sense that, you know, we're talking about living human beings who are suffering through this terrible violence and it's really clear that you know we don't treat all victims of violence the same way because if we did if joe biden treated the victims of hamas's violence the same way as the victims of the idf violence his language would be the same and it's just fundamentally profoundly different mm. speaking with annabelle lucan associate professor of linguistics at macquarie university she's also author of the book war and its ideologies a social semiotic theory and description and i'm kind of conscious of the extent to which some of the these words just get adopted by journalists and even those working in media like you know i'm a volunteer broadcaster and you try to get a sense of certain you know situations happening across the world but you might you know inadvertently start to use certain terms that maybe don't, you know, depict a sort of true version of reality. But but some journalists also might think that it's their not their role to kind of be, be sort of activists and the like. Do you feel like there's a sense that, that conveying that more human uh, effect or human consequences where, you know, there are people who have been killed as a result of, um, you know, bombing or whatever it might be, might lead to them being perceived to be activists versus not sort of being objective? That's just such an important question, Dylan, because one of the things about the meaning of words is whether they're kind of the dominant narrative, right? So we have dominant ways of reporting about war that is kind of takes away this agency, it takes away the stories about the victims, and I know this from studying the ABC's reporting of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, and... You know, I was really a bit shocked and saddened to see how little of the ABC coverage was about the human effects of that decision to invade Iraq. It was a whole lot about the, you know, the strategy and the military operations and the military action and the military briefings. And, you know, there's so much kind of technological infrastructure that takes people's attention away from the human experience of the violence of war. Uh, so once you establish a dominant way of talking, then if somebody comes along and starts to use words that just have a lower frequency and you know we've got really good data now we can go and check on these kinds of things mm. you know what words are dominant and what words are less frequent so if you go the path less traveled you will sound like you're being judgmental you're being subjective you're infusing your reporting with your own perspective whereas if you just, if you just follow how everybody else is talking about what's going on you're just kind of going with the flow and your language will be read as much more objective but yeah. as i say there is no neutral space so you can take anybody's version of reality and see what the trade-offs are so what meanings are they prioritizing and what me meanings are they kind of sort of making more obscure in the way that they frame their approach to something. Such interesting insights. And I, I wonder even about whether, you know, individual journalists might decide not to use certain language because they can't be bothered with, with the backlash. You know, they think, well, it's easier if I just use this term rather than another because I do go with the flow and fly under the radar. Like, I'm not, I don't know if that's well, the case, but I imagine it might play into I, I, calculations. I'm sure it's the case. You, you, will, you mentioned earlier the kind of... Um, sort of contest that's going on on social media. Mm. And so I can imagine for a journalist, you would have to, you know, you'd have to weigh that up in the decisions you make about the way you report something. Absolutely. And especially something as volatile as 
uh, this kind of violence uh, going on at the moment in Israel and Palestine. Yeah, and look, I imagine for someone who's a linguist and, and studies this stuff and understands language intimately, it must kind of do your head in when you see language used in this kind of a way. But for many of us who maybe aren't quite as au fait or sensitive to the way language might be creating maybe a sort of distorted impression of reality, I mean, how would you suggest that we approach the news as we're engaging with things such as the sort of Israel-Hamas conflict at the moment? Uh, well, I think one of the things to be really attuned to, and I guess at this point I, I, I talk to you as a kind of human, as a parent, I've got two children, mm. and I cannot imagine any plausible basis on which I'd say, here you go, you can have my two beautiful children. And there's so much in the reporting of in particular nation-state violence, right? So that's what Israel's engaged in. There's so much of the reporting that is about what they're striving to do, what the purpose of their violence is. You know, it's violence along the way to some greater good. And this is a fundamental way in which we defend you know, the violence of wars of the 21st, the 20th century, however far back you want to go, our whole kind of concept of just war theory, which has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, these are the stories we tell ourselves to defend the use, to defend the use of violence. And, you know, you need to listen for that and work out, OK, would you buy that? You're in that context. It's your house. It's your loved ones, it's your neighbours, it's your hospital. Would you buy that explanation for why you've got to give that up? Mm. And to me, that's just, you know, we have to treat every human life as equally valuable. And it's very clear for me after more than 15 years of study that we've got very elaborate ways of talking about the violence that we want to obscure and justify and treat it, you know, in many cases as part of our, you know, narrative about our, um, you know, nationalism and, you know, all the kind of stuff Mm. about Gallipoli, all of this. We've got very big, deep stories and you scratch the surface and they're about horrible terrible inhuman violence and I wish we could face that. Absolutely. And I mean, just lastly, we, we've talked about your book emerging out of research focused on a 2003 invasion of Iraq. Uh, have you noticed any changes across the news media landscape as you've observed the way that, you know, for example, Israel and, and sort of Gaza has been reported, given that there's been vast changes in terms of the, the platforms and digital tools available to us to kind of comment and, and in, in a way talk back to some of this reporting as well? Um. I haven't, I'm not kind of formally studying the current conflict, mm. so I'm happy to give you my impression. Just impression, yeah, and I was wondering. Yeah, I do feel like that with the, that with social media, there are more stories challenging the dominant narrative than when I was looking at the 2003 invasion of Iraq, where the US really could dominate the media landscape in a much, much deeper way, whereas now it feels like there are lots and lots of stories coming out of Palestine and criticisms of the reporting of the media, even the fact that, you know, you mentioned the... um, sort of unrest at the ABC. Um, so I do feel like that this that things are different this time. Um, but, you know, it's just so shocking and terrible to see the, 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 the horrible violence and the deaths and the killing of children. And, you know, it, it's a very emotional and difficult time for, for so many people. It is. Annabelle, it's been so great having you on the show this morning. Thank you so much for your time. That's my pleasure. Thank you, Dylan. Thanks. Annabelle Lucan there, Associate Professor of Linguistics at Macquarie University. Her book is called War and Its Ideologies, A Social Semiotic Theory and Description. You can also read um, some of her work in the conversation as well, including an article published back in 2021 um, focusing more sort of on Israel and Gaza. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs, issues and culture program on Triple R.
The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am to midday. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.